Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Question of the ages. How can God be just and at the same time be a justifier of sinners? Do you get that? How can he be just, a holy God, and be a justifier at the same time for sinners? How can both be true? How can this be? And, of course, the Reformers and the Puritans worked through that down through the ages. That's something that um, anybody has to really look at and work through. Look in uh, Psalm 32, first two verses. This is amazing what... God, who is holy and just, does for sinners. David said, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. How blessed, how blessed we are. Sin has been forgiven. We are guilty sinners. He's a holy God in every matter and every way, and he covers our sin, as it says there. How can a holy God do that if he's really holy and just? Adam should die. Noah should die. Abraham should die. Moses should die. All those saints that we think of in the Old Testament who were believers or who are in the hall of faith in uh, Hebrews 11. And so the question is a great question. How does God deal with sin? How does he reconcile sinners? How does he do that if he's a holy God? How does he satisfy his holy demands? There should be condemnation of sin and a full and deserved punishment. And how can he still be able to show mercy to sinners who deserve no mercy whatsoever? How can he do that? How does he do that? And, of course, that is in our section today in actually one verse, the very last verse of chapter 5, He shows what he does. He shows how he does it in a way that is beyond our imagination. Reconciliation is by the will of God. It is justification and it is substitution. We get a great answer in Micah chapter 7. Micah is somewhere around Jonah, if you can find that you have Daniel and Hosea Joel Amos you'll kind of keep wandering through and Jonah and then you have Micah and then we find in Micah chapter 7 starting at verse 18 something very magnificent is said here who is a God like you who pardons iniquity Think of it. Who can forgive sin? Only God. And he passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He passes over the elect. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. There it is. God says this. He does this to his people, his unchanging love to Abraham. Even Abraham, who believed it was accounted to him as righteousness, at the same time he deserved the worst that hell could give him. And if that would be to him, it would be to us too. You see in the, in the story, in the gospel story, there is ransom 
there is justification, there's sacrifice, and there's propitiation where God's justice is satisfied. His wrath is quenched. And as we look in 2 Corinthians 5, as we will be looking at verse 20, we see that we have a mission. For all the ones who've had their sins forgiven and are now reconciled to God, we have a priority. Our first ultimate priority, of course, is to worship God, to worship Him. But why we are here on earth also is that we would be ambassadors. We are to articulate this message of reconciliation. We have an objective. We have a goal. We have a priority of life in the ministry that we've all been given. We have a responsibility in this world. The responsibility is to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to represent him in that we have a ministry of reconciliation. As Christ had that ministry, as the apostles had that ministry of reconciliation, we too, as we see in this text, we have a ministry of reconciliation. That's the very heart and soul of our responsibility. We have a duty to do here on earth, and that's to preach the message of the good news, to tell people they can be reconciled to God, to tell people who are wicked, evil sinners who've affronted a holy God who are hostile to him. They hate him. There's an animosity that's involved, an enmity, an alienation that these people have And we have a responsibility to tell them that they can be reconciled to God. They can be totally changed. And from enemies, they can be considered forever friends of God. That is our duty, our responsibility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you do, for what you've given us. We have the ministry of reconciliation. And as we also go through our text today, we see some of the great high doctrine of all the Bible found in one verse. Incredible, unbelievable how in just a few short words you say it all. Help us to gain something so simple but way beyond our finite minds. This is an infinite message. And Lord, may we get what is stressed here, sunk deeply into our minds and our hearts to look at the beauty of Christ, the majesty that he is. Help us to gain that vision today through your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Grab Bibles. Let's stand. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, verse 21. At the end of verse 19, it says, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can be seated. What a text. And I'm afraid in my own thinking and my own lack of knowing the depth of what this is, that I will not be able to present this in the way it needs to be proclaimed. At the same time, we pray that the Lord help my words come out in a way that would impact us all. Right at the end of verse 19, we see that we, uh, we have a, 
word of reconciliation that's been committed to us. Committed, it means it's been divinely appointed that we have this message. God did it deliberately. It's all on his part that he has given this nature of this appointment that we have the message of reconciliation. He's committed that to us. And so we move into verse 20. Therefore, because of this is what he has given, this ministry of reconciliation, we are ambassadors for Christ. What a profound truth, amazing truth. Paul Washer said it like this. It would have been incredible. It would have been an incredible amount of grace if God just sent us to hell just for a little while. Just be there for a while that then he would take us. That would be incredible grace, wouldn't it? That's how wicked and evil we are in our sinful lives before Christ. Or, he said, it would be an incredible amount of grace if he just put us in a neutral place. Not heaven, not hell. We deserve hell in its fullest way. And yet, it would be tremendous grace if we were put in a neutral place. But it is amazing, as we know the gospel and the truth, that he would make us ambassadors or servants of his court serve him. I mean, this is absolutely astounding, isn't it? Isn't this the majesty and the beauty of God? It's the beauty of Christ that he's done. We want to look at him. Just look at Christ. I want to tell you, it is astounding every time you look at his word and you see him more deeply. It says we are ambassadors. That word there is presbuos, and it's really dealing with, we've heard the word presbyter, it's elder. And in this uh, idea here, it's an elder or first in rank. It's a statesman with age and high rank, a statesman. He represents the interest of, of another to another nation abroad an ambassador he throughout the Old Testament we see ambassadors they offer congratulations they solicit favors they make alliances they protest wrongful actions the Romans had the idea of an ambassador they, they called him a legate or a legatus And he was duly appointed by the emperor to represent or to administer the imperial provinces in that Roman behalf, on behalf of the the king, the Romans. He's a representative. The personal ruler of a land, he's representing that particular ruler. He represents his government. He represents the people of that nation. All the character that they are, all the dignity that that nation can have, all the philosophy of that kingdom, that nation. The ambassador speaks for his ruler. He doesn't speak of his own thoughts and opinions, but he represents who he is speaking for. He is the ruler's mouthpiece. So he speaks for him. He never utters his own thoughts. He never offers promises or demands his own things, but it comes from the king. And an ambassador, when he goes somewhere else, represents a kingdom, a kingdom that can be far away, a country that can be far away. That means when he goes to another place, he's a foreigner there. He speaks a different language than they do. They speak strange language. Their culture is different. The traditions that they have are different. Everything that they do, different lifestyles there. And he's still representing where he's coming from. He's in a foreign world. And he represents his king as he brings forth the message from the kingdom, the message of the sovereign. We, we too, can look at that spiritually and realize this is how we can understand the calling that we have. We are ambassadors. In a foreign land, we are strangers here. We are aliens. We have a message from the kingdom 
to a strange place. We don't belong here. This is not our eternal home. It says in Philippians 3.20 that we are citizens. Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly wait for Him. At the same time, we are representing Him right here. That's why we're here. First Peter 2.11 says that uh, we're aliens, we are strangers, and we proclaim the good news of reconciliation that the King has, representing Him to this other foreign land that they can be reconciled to the king. So we go back to our Second Corinthians 5. We're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. Word of God, the truth, the gospel is gotten out in a way that comes from God, but it's through us, and it's actually, it's, it's like it's really His message. That's why we have to be so careful in how we present the gospel. The God of heaven entreating men to be reconciled to Him through us. Have you ever thought of that? It's amazing. No calling could be greater than this. What can be greater than representing the king, telling people the good news that they can be reconciled to God? C.H. Spurgeon said this. This is one little sentence, but it's really awesome. If God has called you to, to be a minister of the gospel of Christ, listen to this. Don't stoop to become a king. You have something greater than what it is to be a king. All the kings of the earth, the presidents and such. And we have a higher calling being ambassadors here. Is that awesome? Thank you, C.H. You had a way with words. <laughs> We're going to meet him one of these days. Whereas We're ambassadors as God is entreating through us as, he, as he's doing that. He's, he's beseeching transgressors, sinners, and he's using sinners <laughs> to get that message across. He could have done it in another way. He could have done it just with the voice of himself. But no, he uses us. And it pertains to every one of us. Every one of us. We are ambassadors. God coming alongside the sinner to present this idea of faith in him as though God were making an appeal through us and here's the message we, that we should be. We beg on you, you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message to them. Be reconciled to God. You're lost. You need to be reconciled. You're an enemy of God. It's on his behalf. Be reconciled to God. It's then the greatest work in the world that we have. It deals with the greatest issue that is in the world. It deals with the greatest calling. It's the greatest privilege that we could ever have here. It's the responsibility to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ about reconciliation. That's what we live for here on earth about. As we give glory to God and worship Him, then it's to get this news out. This is an amazing statement. The reconciled, that's us, become reconcilers. We had to be reconciled to him. He used somebody to bring you truth so that you would not be enemies anymore and you were reconciled. And now you go to the ones who need to be reconciled. We can go and tell them that God has made peace with the world. It's not good advice. It's good news. We have the good news. Tell them that they need to receive the good news. That's an ambassador. And it has to be appropriated. 
It's not that here's some knowledge about the good news. It has to be appropriated. What Christ has done has been accomplished. It is passive, but it's an ongoing, continuing process here. We're God's agents. We're to announce what he has already done. We are town criers or ambassadors or town criers or, I'm going to say this word, we are heralds. We have families of heralds here that have that namesake. It's a great name. I think it's a privilege to have a name like that. That is a precious word. Heralding the truth. You know what? Charles Wesley wrote this. We sang it last week. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's why I love those songs so much. That's why... I felt kind of cheated by the ice this year because we missed out a whole week of where we were going to sing those Christmas hymns that are so special. But we got to last week. Usually we do the whole month because the theology in those hymns are some of the best. And, and it's just like where we're at today. It deals with that. God and sinners reconciled. God, holiness, sinners reconciled. James Denny wrote this, When Christ's work was done, the reconciliation of the world was accomplished. When men were called to receive it, they were called to a relation to to God, not in which they would no more be against Him, though that is included, but in which they would no more have Him against them. There would be no condemnation thenceforth to those who were in Christ Jesus. Our mission is to preach to them who are the enemies of God the peace on earth and mercy mild to preach the gospel for them to receive it, to appropriate it so that they'd have no more against him. So that they can be totally changed from being an enemy to being a forever friend. Forever Do you realize what kind of a mission that has been given to us? It's our calling to preach reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. Tell that to them. Now we go to part two. Part two has a lot of parts. Part two. Is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the Bible. This is where everything hinges at. It's incredible. It's called the Great Exchange. It's justification. It's, it's propitiation. Many things, that's what we're going to look at here now. This is what I'm talking about. This is so simple, and we can so much just let this right over our heads because we've heard it before. We know that. I've heard it over and over. Some of us, ever since we were kids. But sometimes we can become so numb to such depth of truth that is here. The great exchange, it's a double transaction double imputation the it's really the ultimate buy low sell high if you understand this you understand the gospel he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Paul speaks of an exchange here. It's interesting. Right in the second century, this word was already used. Now, it's, we don't see it here in this, this, and it says, this is the great exchange. But even very early uh, in, a, in an epistle, it's not in the scripture, but Dognetus is the man's name. You don't have to remember that. But here's what he wrote. The early church already understood this great exchange. Oh, blessed exchange, as he wrote. And he said, oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the unsearchable workmanship. Oh, the incredible benefits that sowed the iniquity of many should be hidden in one righteous and the righteousness of one should justify many iniquities. I think he's right on on the truth of the, what did he say, the sweet exchange. That's what Paul speaks about here. When Christ is made sin for us, and we are made the righteousness of God in him, that is what is being put forth here. Uh, Something is taken from us and given to Christ. And something is taken from Christ and given to us. Our sins are taken from us, put on Christ. His righteousness is taken from him and put on us at this point. Let's look at the saving father here. We're going to look at the saving father, then we're going to look at the sinless son as we approach through Verse 21, saving father says that he made him, he made him, he, everything starts with God, everything starts with God, the father, everything, he initiates it all, all starts with him and that's what we need to be reminded of always look in psalm 22 verse 1 this is the beautiful psalm that really prophesies jesus's death even though it's true of david it is a type of christ and in verse 1 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. We know that Jesus fulfilled that particular prophecy. Jesus said that. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. And then we move on to verse 15. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you... Lay me in the dust of death. That's the Father. You lay me in the dust of death. It all starts with the Father. Isaiah 53. We sure have been turning to that a lot lately. This is the gospel found in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Smitten by the father. That's what he did to his son. It was the father who did that. People can say that it was the Romans, the Jews, it was me. That's true. But it was ultimately, it was... The father who did this. Verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused. The father caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It starts with the father. Verse 10, but the Lord 
here in this context, it's a father, was pleased to what? Crush him, putting him to grief. It pleased the Lord to crush him, to kill him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now we come to the sinless son. We start with the saving father, and now we see the sinless son in this verse. This most certainly is the earthly life, his incarnate life, being in the flesh. We know without question, being God, he has no sin. This is dealing with the impeccability of Christ, of God the Son. He was impeccable. He did not sin. By the way, he could not sin. We're going to take it all the way to that. He could not sin. He was tempted, just like us, but he could not sin. He is God. He cannot sin, would not sin. He has to be one without sin. Christ knew no sin. Impeccability. He qualified to effect the atonement man for man, as Hughes puts it in his commentary. If he had sinned, he would have been unqualified to stand in our place. Then who could do it? Okay, now we have to ask this. This is where Washer, who was preaching on this verse, said, What's the greatest sin? says here, he made him who knew no sin. Well, let's just ask, what's the greatest sin? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we know, love your neighbor, right? The, the very greatest commandment. And, of course, in the Ten Commandments, it's, it starts with God. We are to love him with every ounce of our being, every second, every moment. I don't know about you, but I... Yeah, I do know about you. You can't do that. Because I know man. No man. No man has been able to do that. Except for one. We know who that is. Christ knew no sin. We're to love God with all our heart. Everything. No one has done this. But there is one. Not one second. There was not one second that Christ didn't love. God, with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, never failed at one moment. I think that's amazing. I think it's astonishing. I think it's overwhelming to think about. He did what no man could do. He did what none of us could do, this Christ. Is he a beautiful Savior? Look at Christ. Look at him. Look at him on the cross. He is sin. We'll explain that in a moment. But he's holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners, this Christ. Peter said this, the just for the unjust. The just hanging on the cross. Totally sinless. To be made Sin. He made him who know no sin to be sin on our behalf. Look at Hebrews 7.26 to make sure that we have this doctrine down because very shortly I'm going to say something that is rather overwhelming. Seven twenty-six Hebrews. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Totally holy, without sin in every way. Uh, go to First uh, Peter. 
2.22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. There was a guy by the name of Scorsese. Supposed to be a very well-known, amazing maker of movies. Came out with a movie back in the 80s, late 80s, I believe it was, called The Last Temptation of Christ. Showing that Christ was a sinner. That's such an evil thought, to call him a sinner. That's not what we're saying when he was made a sin. trespasses that we had are are credited to to his account but he's without sin in what sense did he become sin we have to be really careful I want to tell you this is terrifying this is really a thought that is really hard to really grasp in the sense that He became sin. There are false teachers in our day who have totally misrepresented this thought here. Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin are very guilty of this. And they've spread it on to almost all your health wealth teachers. These false teachers, that's exactly what they are. I want to tell you what they say from their words. They say on the cross, Jesus became a sinner. That's not what it's saying. It said he actually became a sinner, just like we have sinned. Jesus became a sinner, they say. And then he went to hell to suffer the just punishment of his sin for three days. And when he had suffered and expiated his sin, God released him to be raised from the tomb. They're saying is that he sinned too then. And then he rose from the grave. But he went to hell to pay the punishment for his sin. It's incredibly bad. Matter of fact, it's not only bad, or just ignorance on their part. It's blasphemy. This is the heart of the gospel, to call Jesus a sinner. He, He was pure and sinless on the cross. Right there on the cross, he was still pure. The spotless lamb. He did not become a sinner on the cross. He did not break any laws. What we're saying here is that God treated Jesus on the cross as if he personally committed every sin by every person who would ever believe. That's the way that God views him here That's the extent of the real atonement. God treated him as if he had taken in all that sin. God exploded on him the fullest, complete wrath. The fury of all of his wrath was exploded on his son. That's how he was treated. When he was on the cross, he was imputed our sin. Yes, it was on him. He was declared guilty. That's where we're getting at now. He's still sinless, but yet he is guilty because our sins were transferred to him as he was on the cross. He's guilty. Guilt makes me tremble when I really think about my sin being put on this sinless lamb. And he's guilty Because of me. He's guilty. Father treats him that way. Guilt means the liability to suffer the penal consequences of the law. Again, the liability to suffer the penal consequences of the law. This is penal substitutionary atonement. He's punished as the sins, the iniquities were put on him from us. The Lord Jesus was made sin by divine imputation of our guilt. He was officially guilty. 
Just as we are declared righteous, that's what justification is, to be declared righteous, he was declared guilty. Thank God that that happened. But that sounds so blasphemous, isn't it? That's how much this happened. He wrapped himself in our guilt, took the full force. That judgment was meted out on him. And you think about Isaiah 53. Whereas God the Father took joy in this. How else are we going to be bought out of the situation we're in? It's his plan. Sin is imputed or deposited. Our sin is deposited to the account of Christ. Our sin. What a deal. What a deal. He made him who knew no sin, and it says to be. You'll notice in your Bibles it's italics. That means in the original it's not there. It helps us in our English to understand that. And for somebody to take it and all of a sudden call him a sinner. It's not that case. He didn't sin. But what the Father does here, he says, He made him who knew no sin, sin. Didn't make him do the act of sin. But he is sin. In the sense our sin is there. He is treated as a sinner, our substitute. This is his human nature, of course. It's two natures. He has the deity nature, but it's the human nature that this happens. How can we know what that really means? Can we really know the depth of all this? If we did, I think we'd die right here. But I do want to tell you, we were cursed before this. You remember what happened at the sin of Adam? He was cursed. The whole world was cursed. And if one is not delivered from that curse, they're still cursed. Matter of fact, I think it was Washer that said this one. The last thing a sinner will hear after God, who is the judge, who gives them the sentence of eternal hell, last thing that they'll hear is praise to God from the saints, the angels, because he curses the wicked. I think that sounds really bad. Well, it's because would you want wickedness in heaven but ultimately it's showing the righteousness of God and we'll see the righteousness of God in that sense I think we could could be shocked by this and we should Jesus took the curse for the elect he took the curse we don't have that curse hanging on us we've trusted in Christ when Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? R.C. Sproul has an answer to that. Now, you won't find this necessarily in a particular verse, but this is the whole idea. We've seen it in other verses that we've already read. But it's basically like this. The Father is replying because of if he has a curse... The one who's cursed is damned. The Lord your God damns you. That sounds horrendous, doesn't it? That's how serious we have to take what Christ did. Why would he ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Separated from God in that sense. The Lord says in Isaiah 53, delights to destroy you. The Father takes delight in crushing him. He's uncovered. He's unprotected. He's cursed. He's guilty. He's cursed as the guilty person. 
is cursed. The idolatry, the immorality, the injustice, the dishonor, all the wicked thoughts that we have had, all the different things in our life that does not represent and honor Christ was put on him there. The sin was imputed to Christ. It was exposed. It was exposed. It was uncovered right there before God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, it became dark all over. It was placarded before men and demons. Christ was cursed beyond all measure. He took the full curse. You know what? My sins are so high that only an act of this kind of nature can deal with sin. See, God takes sin seriously. It took a violent act There's the death of his son on the cross. God treated him as if he was a sinner. And if you understand that, you understand the very first half of substitution and imputation because our sin was put on him. Second half, it's not only that our sin gets taken care of, but now... We're given righteousness from him. This is the doctrine of imputation. Imputed. Banking term. This is all legal. It's legal matters. Are you righteous? Are you perfectly righteous? Do you have the right to go marching into the very presence of God because your life is so sinless? No. Before Christ, there's the doctrine of substitution, though. We now have the right to go marching in to the king, to the throne room. Because of the cross, our sins have been expiated, been taken out, the wrath is over. There's no condemnation. We see where the wrath really happened in time, and in space. Right here on earth, it happened. That's, that's incredible. Right here on earth, he came. It's very clear to us. As he takes that baggage off of us, the wrath has been taken care of. There's been imputation. His righteousness has been put on us. That substitution... That's atonement. He wasn't the sinner. I wasn't righteous. But God covered him with my sin and treated him as if he had committed it all. Everything I have done, still do, will do. He treats me as if I had done only Jesus' righteous deeds. If he treated Jesus as if he took all the sin of the elect, then that same imputation of his righteousness that puts on me, he treats me as if I did the righteous deeds of Christ. That's imputation. He sees me as holy. That's why we're called saints. We are holy. Only thing is, we're still on this earth in the flesh. We still sin. Now, we have this ministry of reconciliation. It's all of grace, isn't it? Every bit of this, it's all of grace. Look in Galatians 3. This is what we've been talking about whenever, whenever I was mentioning the, the guilt and the curse 
Galatians 3, starting at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's every man, woman, child. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. And he quotes out of the Old Testament. For the righteous man shall live by faith. A righteous man. That's the verse that really caused all sorts of problems with Martin Luther. He realized that he was not righteous. And he realized he couldn't be righteous. Because the very moment that he confessed his sin, within a few moments later, he turned right back around, went back to the confessional, and started confessing another sin because a thought had happened and he sinned. He knew he couldn't be righteous before God. And that's why he hated God. Righteous man shall live by faith and he knew he wasn't righteous. He was not just. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Show me a perfect man. Well, we know Christ is, but anybody else? No. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And that's why I say, when I use the word he was damned at that moment. It means he, he took on the curse that we had that had been transferred to him. For it is written, cursed as everyone who hangs on a tree. That's right out of the law. That means you're cursed if you've been brought to this kind of condemnation. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's the ultimate that's Christ. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And he made him to be sin on our behalf. He did it as a substitutionary offering on our behalf. I don't want to labor this too much. But I'll tell you what, it's something that's hard to understand at times. He was a substitutionary offering. And the righteousness of God then was then transferred to us. The riches that he's given us are off the charts. He could have just forgiven us, declared us righteous, and that had been it. But no. He brings us into the family of God. He adopts us. We're not only justified, we're brought into the family of God and we have all the rights that a child of God can have. A kingdom child. All the rights that the king's son has. The righteousness of God has been given to us. The spotless righteousness. And that's what God the Father sees when he looks at us. Look in 1 Peter 2.24. That was a verse I wanted to turn to just for a moment. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed bore our sins in the body on the cross so that we would die to sin live to righteousness sin taken off righteousness put on we have the robes of righteousness we wrap or he wraps this righteousness around us so the very same imputation that happened to Adam the first Adam 
He was imputed sin. When he sinned, and all of mankind thereafter would inherit the sin. They are imputed sin. On behalf of what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. And that same method of imputation then is done with the second Adam as his righteousness is put on us. He was constituted sin that we would become the what? The righteousness of God. We are made righteous. What a virtue. Look in Philippians 3, 9. He's talking about all his, his own righteousness that he did before Christ. And he's, you know, he, he, I mean, if anybody was righteous in their own acts and such, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And he says this, and in verse 80, uh, he's talking about it was all rubbish, right? It's all trash that I may gain Christ. It's nothing. None of that stuff really matters. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, those filthy rags, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, justified by faith. Union with him. Union with Christ. That's how God the Father looks at us. He looks at us being united in Christ. In Christ. I close with this, and it's a quote from Thomas Hooker. I think I even have it on your outlines, possibly. Such we are in the sight of God the Father, as is the very Son of God Himself. Let it be counted folly or frenzy or fury or whatever. It is our wisdom and comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this. That man hath sinned and God hath suffered. That God hath made himself the sin of men. And that men are made the righteousness of God. Father, I stand here overwhelmed for what your word has just spoken through. Your word is true. It's high and it's holy. And we can understand this, though, too, of what has happened to us. We're new creatures. We're justified and we're children of the king. We are representing you here right now, here on this earth. Help us to represent you as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, who did this great act on the cross. The great exchange. May it ever be before us. For we know what we really deserve. And we got eternal life And from here on out, it's the greatest. It's the greatest that could ever be. Eternal life, knowing Christ forever, being with him. Thank you for giving this vision of Christ as we've looked at the word, as we look at him, as we look at the cross, and we look at where we're at now and where we're going. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these people who we have so thankful for. And as we go out here, may we take this word and represent you very well. In Jesus' name. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.
Until next time.